Hi, you're listening to the Raise the Vibe with Liz podcast. I'm your host, Liz Peterson. I interview today's inspirational speakers and healers. Thank you for listening to the show. Welcome to another episode of Raise the Vibe with Liz. I'm your host, Liz Peterson, and today I have Robert Moss joining me today. Super excited to have you, Robert. I'm going to go ahead and read your bio. Robert Moss has been a dream traveler since doctors pronounced him clinically dead in a hospital in Hobart, Tasmania, when he was three years old. From his experiences in many worlds, he created his school of active dreaming. His original synthesis of modern dream work and ancient shamanic and mystical practices for journeying to realms beyond the physical and growing creative imagination. He has led popular workshops all over the world, including a three-year training for teachers of active dreaming and online courses for the Shift Network. A former lecturer in ancient history at the Australian National University is a New York Times bestselling novelist, poet, journalist, and independent scholar. His many books on dreaming, shamanism, and imagination include Conscious Dreaming, The Secret History of Dreaming, Dreaming the Soul Back Home, The Boy Who Died and Came Back, Sidewalk Oracles, and Mysterious Realities. His latest book, Growing Big Dreams, Manifesting Your Heart's Desires Through 12 Secrets of the Imagination, is a passionate and practical call to step through the gates of dreams and imagination to survive hard times travel without leaving home and grow the vision of a more abundant life so rich and strong that it wants to take root in the world. He has lived in upstate New York since he received a message from a red-tailed hawk under an old white oak. His website is mossdreams.com. Robert, welcome to the show. Good to be dreaming with you, Liz. Wonderful. So great to have you. So for those who don't know you, why don't you start off with a little bit about what exactly is shamanic dreaming? Well, it should be obvious because in North America, the most common indigenous word for shaman means literally dreamer. Lots of people in the neo-shamanic movement don't seem to understand that dreaming is the heart of the business. If you're going to be a real shaman in the Mohawk Indian language, which I had to learn because of my dreams, the word is radzetsats. It means literally one who dreams, implying one who dreams a lot, one who can travel intentionally in dreaming, one who can enter the dream space at will and heal and find out information about the future and guide souls on both sides of death. So dreaming in every sense of the word is the very heart of what real shamans do, in my opinion. Now, people think that shamans do this or that. Some people think it's to do with medicine, plants and you know psychotropic drugs. I've never used those things. I never needed them. I mean, since a kid, I've had the ability to shift consciousness and enter the dreaming at will as a gift in the wound of you know life-threatening illnesses as a boy. So I don't judge those who use them and make them part of the practice, but they're no part of my approach to shamanic dreaming. The, the shamans and the dreamers who interest me, Liz, can do the following things. They can enter a state of hyper lucid dreaming, wide awake lucid dream at will when they choose to, without hallucinogenics. They might use drumming, they might use sonics, they might simply do it by, swipping, by flipping it in a switch. They're familiar with death. They have literally gone beyond death and come back. That is absolutely central. So one of the central roles of the real shaman is the psychopomp work, guiding souls through death, guiding souls on both sides of death. The real shaman in practice, and you can see this cross-country, is also a poet of consciousness. 
someone who changes things by telling better stories about them, someone who has magic words, some someone who stages theater and entertainment to dance the bad spirits of illness out of the space. And I love that whole aspect of shamanism. I mean, I'm a Celt by ancestry along with other things. And the bard in me, the poetic spirit in me is absolutely primary. I want the words, I want beautiful words, not old words in the Inuit language, in the language of the Angakok, Angakok, which is the Inuit shaman. Uh, there's a wonderful word for dream, and it sounds like this, Kosaitagishak. I'm not probably not doing that perfectly, but I'm having it go. At, that's an Inuit shaman word for dream. What does it mean? It means that which makes me plunge in headfirst, that which makes me take the deep dive. That is the understanding of what dreaming is. It takes you to a world beyond the obvious one. And that for me is what is central to the practice of shamanic dreaming. Now, now in, in the practice, what which I teach, which I call my overall approach active dreaming, which is a, a bit of a provocation. People think dreaming, if they attention, uh, to pay attention, is something that happens to you when you lie down, you're dormant, you know, it's all passive. Well, that can be good too. But active dreaming, amongst other things, teaches people to take the portal of a personal dream. You remember something from the night, you have a personal image in some form, and travel through that doorway. We use drumming in the workshops and the courses at home. You might not even need the drumming. You make your shamanic journey based on, upon a personal image that has come to you in a spontaneous way, in a dream or some other way. Thereby, you know it's timely, you know it's personal, you know it's appropriate to work with it, and you learn to make that the doorway for your journey. So that is one of, that's an example of the marriage of shamanic journeying techniques, which many are familiar with, with the dream work, which many people who sit around and just talk about dreams and analyze dreams <laughs> don't yet understand can become a far more active proposition. So that's a little bit about what I mean when I talk about shamanic dreaming. Awesome, let's step into that active dreaming a little bit because there are many messages and themes we can get for our daily life in our dreams. So let's talk about that a little bit and sort of like waking up in our to our dream to this dream reality. Right, I think one thing to be said about dreams and I'm talking in particular now about those spontaneous sleep dreams that you might think are crazy or don't pay much attention to or just seem like little bubbles, little fragments that are floating away. I want to say this about dreams. Every dream tells you more than you already know. It might not be very important. It might be a minor thing, but every dream tells you something beyond what you know in waking consciousness. That's not to say that all dreams are important. There are big dreams and there are little dreams. But I will, particularly with people who have not been, had not had practice of remembering and doing anything, anything with their dreams, I encourage them, hey, slow down. Don't tell me you're not remembering your dreams. Don't tell me it doesn't matter. Bring me something. It might just be a tiny fragment from the night. Bring me a little something and let's have a look at it. Let's play with it. Let's roll it around. Let's see what might emerge from it. Here's something very ancient in terms of understanding what's going on in dreams. Uh, and an elder, an elder of the Confederacy of the Longhouse of the Iroquoian peoples, of whom the Mohawk Indians are one. This is what an elder of that tradition, which I had to study, and whose languages I had to learn because of my dreams. An elder of that Northeastern Native American tradition said to me when I told him my dreams of an ancient woman shaman who lived nearly 300 years ago, who was calling me in lucid dreams in the night, he said, oh, Robert, you made some visits and you received some visitations. What is that saying? It's saying what our ancestors knew, Liz, dreaming is traveling. We travel, we get out there. We travel to into next Tuesday of next week. We see what the future holds. We travel to realms where the dead are alive. We travel to parallel lives where we're doing something a bit different from what we're doing right now. We travel to the past, to the future, to parallel times, to worlds of imagination that are altogether real. 
And, you know, in, in the time of pandemic, this was a great consolation to people who are just starting to wake up to the day. Wait a minute. I can't go to Paris. I can't go and see, you know, Jenny in, in on the other side of the continent, but I can travel in my dreams. That is something. So I think many people who'd forgotten what dreaming can be were relearning something that was ancestral knowledge known probably by all our ancestors. In, travel, in dreams, you get out and about and you receive visitations. And those visitations can be very important. They can be confusing. They can be intrusive. But the visitations we receive might include visits from our departed loved ones who have a message for us or need some healing and forgiveness. They might include an encounter with your true spiritual guide, not the one that you cooked up from some book or some artificial exercise, but the form that your guide, your personal guide takes in the dress-up disguise your guide will put on to get your attention. That's the kind of thing that goes on in dreams too. And as we talk about all this, although I've been featuring sleep dreams right now, because sleep dreams have a certain kind of objectivity. The control freak and the ego is not in charge of sleep dreams. That's why I love the spontaneous gift of the dream that comes in the night that you may not want, including the one that scares you, because it's trying to wake you up. But when I'm talking about dreams of the night, I'm also talking about the hypnagogic state. What does that mean? It means the in-between state, the drifty state. Everybody knows it to some extent. You're not awake, you're not asleep, you're drifting. Images rise and fall if you're patient, if you maintain a state of relaxed attention. And I would say that is one of the most creative places to be any time of day or night in terms of finding solutions to things, in terms of opening your natural psychic intuitive ability in order to be available to deeper sources of knowledge. So I spend a lot of time in my 24-hour cycle in that in-between state, not asleep, not awake but in a sort of relaxed state of drifty attention where things come in a spontaneous way. How can we use that state to better handle what, especially right now, you know, what we're experiencing in life right now, all the difficulty and challenges? I missed the first part of your question. There was something sort of tinkling. Will you say it again? Oh, sorry about that. How can we use that hypnagogic state to deal with what we're experiencing now in current times and challenges? Well, the first thing is to grow the practice of spending time there. I mean, it's a kind of very simple everyday yoga of consciousness. When people talk to me about sleep nidra and dream yoga and all this, fine, great. But you have this available to you in this place between sleep and awake. Actually, the best guidance on what it is comes from Tinkerbell in one of the Hollywood movies. It's not in the original Peter Pan novels. I think it's in Hook. Uh, uh, Peter Pan is sad because his fairy friend is going away. And Tinkerbell says to Peter, look for me in the place between sleep and awake. There I will wait for you. There I will love you. There you will always find me. So here is your fairy friend who might be an analog for your spiritual guide waiting for you in that place between sleep and awake. So you start by growing the practice. Now it might be when you first go to bed. You know, if you're not absolutely fatigued or haven't drunk too much, you can just drift for a while and things will come to you. Uh, more likely it's going to be in the middle of the night when you're awake, you might have to go to the bathroom, but you know, you come back and you're in that in-between state and you just practice lying in whatever position is comfortable for you, maybe experimenting with how you're going to arrange your body and, and letting images come and go. And often you'll get experiences like a parade of faces. That's quite common. People see a lot of faces. They wonder what's going on. Well, you're probably seeing into the human noise band. You're probably seeing other dreamers. You might be seeing people who've died who are around in the atmosphere. You might get sort of lights and flashes of color. You might get textiles. Eventually, if you just stay in that state, 
you'll find that a scene begins to form, a landscape begins to form in that crowd of faces. Someone is looking at you and bang, if you want to, you're in a state of lucid dreaming. So this is also a royal road to lucid dreaming. You start out lucid and you stay lucid. It's as easy as that. We have all lucid dreaming has become very popular. There are all these books and all these nostrums about how to be a lucid dreamer. I would say to you, you want to get really simple about this? Start out lucid and stay lucid. Don't just think about looking at your hands in the dream and asking, am I dreaming? You're always dreaming from my point of view. It's a question of what you're going to do with the dream state, whether your eyes are open or closed. So when you get habituated to spending more time in the zone, you'll notice all sorts of things. Things arise spontaneously, maybe things from your personal unconscious that you haven't recognized. But there's a transpersonal aspect. As I say, your psychic intuitive abilities come to the fore. Your ability to harvest creative solutions come to the fore. And the history of scientific breakthroughs, and I've done some work on this, it's in my book, The Secret History of Dreaming. One of the most creative state in science and invention has been precisely this hypnagogic zone between sleep and awake. I remember the man who got the Nobel Prize for discovering the benzene ring, the, the prize for chemistry, Kekulay, was dozing by a fireplace on a gray, rainy evening in Brussels. And suddenly he saw a serpent biting his tail, which would make us all go mythological, the Ouroboros and so on. But he also understood because of the nature of his research that he'd found the key to a chemical solution everyone had been looking for, and he got it in that drifty in-between state. So, you know, be aware that things might come to you. And of course, another great stage in the 24-7 cycle to be in this state and to harvest something from it is when you are finally waking up in the morning, but you don't have to rush out of bed. Hopefully you've not been, you've not been startled out of sleep by the alarm or by someone tickling your foot or by the dog barking or the cat jumping on your face. You can linger in bed in a lazy, languorous state for a while and see what comes to you. What might come to you is from the last cycle of dreams, whether you remembered them or not. But what comes to you in that moment might be just a sense of clarity and orientation of guidance on how to go forward. Because Liz, in these conditions, I think many people are more aware than we were in the past in the, in the conditions of pandemic, which is not over yet, by the way, <laughs> in conditions of madness and mayhem and chaos in our politics, in our society, right, left and center, we are where we must have sources and resources beyond the obvious. We must actually have a place of soul we can go to, to get in touch with soul and what soul wants. Because a lot of our problems from a real shamanic point of view are due to the loss of soul and the corruption of soul and the absolute absence of soul in people who purport to rule our societies. We have to bring soul back into our decisions as communities, as individuals, as families, as nations, as a global enterprise. And dreaming is a way of, of discovering what the soul wants. That's one of the things I learned from the Iroquoian tradition. When I dreamed of an Adzedzots, uh, a female dreamer, a Rondiwana, a woman of power who lived nearly 300 years ago, who called me in the night in lucid dreams and insisted on speaking her own language. She taught me that one of the most important things to know about dreams from her perspective, her ancestral indigenous perspective, North American perspective is, dreams show us the ondinonk. What does this funny word mean? It means the secret wish of the soul, the ondinonk. The ondinonk is the secret wish of the soul, a species revealed in dreams. And in her tradition, the job of decent people and decent society is to gather tenderly around the dream or fiercely, depending on the nature of the dream. Listen to the dream, identify what the soul wants, what the soul wants in the dream, and help the dreamer to manifest what the soul wants. Because they say, if you don't do what the soul wants, some part of the soul becomes disgusted with you and it goes away, withdrawing its energy, its creativity, its balance from your life. So she reminded me from her tradition of something, once again, I think that all our ancestors knew, 
It's just that we drifted pretty far from it. And dreaming is a way of getting back to what the soul knows, to that deeper level of knowledge and purpose. Mm, beautiful, Robert. That's amazing. Gosh, I love your work. I've been doing your work for over 10 years now. Love dreaming. My dream world is a favorite of mine and gives me many intuitions into my past, present, and future. You know, from dream visits, past loved ones, and then um, future incarnations. Um, I had one just last week of a soul that's going to be incarnated in June. Um, so let's dip into this um, where we can contact spirit and contact our soul and really get an idea of what we're experiencing in our life and possibly what we can experience in the future. And let's dive into that a little bit more. Well, uh, are you telling, let's just dwell for a moment on what you just said. Are you, are you saying that you dreamed of someone who's going to be born in June? Is that what you're talking about? I am. Yeah, I am. Yes. Australian Aboriginal, I have a friend, I have a friend who's an Aboriginal elder. I once heard him tell a group, every child has a, needs a spiritual parent in a sense that the word Godfather, Godmother doesn't necessarily describe. Every child needs a spiritual parent who will watch over that spirit as it makes its way into the mother's body and reassure the spirit that it's on the right way, that this world is going to be okay. <laughs> and is watching over them and looking out. So maybe if your dream is my dream, maybe I'm being invited to do more than note the, the coming event. Maybe I'm being invited to play that role of welcoming and watching over the incoming spirit. Oh, I love that. You know, all of this is much all of this is much simpler than you know we make it for ourselves. I guess I'm getting rather indigenous in this conversation. I hope you don't mind. In the Mohawk Indian language, see, I'm a dreamer from way back. I have to do the work. I have to do the research. It's not all a new age bubble for me. I had to spend years working with native speakers to understand what that woman of power from long ago was saying to me. And as I learned the, the archaic forms of the Mohawk Indian language and the Huron language, I learned some interesting things. For example, in Mohawk, if you want to say, I am alive, you say, Giadonte. It means I have a body. The implication is my spirit has a body right now. And in that sense, I'm alive in this world. The further implication is when I don't have a body in this world, my spirit will be living somewhere else. You see, we are spirits. We are spirits. One of the, I have no theology about these things, Liz, but I know this as a dreamer, as a lifelong dreamer. I know that if you do enough of this dreaming, you'll cease to have any personal doubt that there is life beyond physical death. You'll just cease to doubt that. You'll know it. You know it through first-hand experience. And by my observation, there's a huge difference between those of us who know through first-hand experience that there is life beyond physical death and those who don't yet know it. They might have hope, they might have faith, but it's not the same. Or they might be skeptics and believe that there's nothing but soil after, but, but dirt after physical death. They might believe that. And then once you understand that there's life after death, you begin to understand there's life before birth, that there's a world, there's an interworld between life and death on both ends of the continuum. As Yeats said, the great William Butler Yeats has been one of my guides off and on all my life since my boyhood and guided me in writing a book called The Dreamer's Book of the Dead. Uh, Yeats said, you know, it's helpful to know a little bit about what happens before conception, a little bit about what happens after death. Very helpful, says the poet. It's very helpful to know these things. So if you're open to that and you develop the, the first-hand conviction based on experience that these things are like that, then you're open to conversation with the spirits, with spirited people, with intelligent minds from across time and space and different realities. And you're also able to exercise some discernment. So you're not just going to be led astray 
by anybody who's in the ethers just because they happen to be dead. People aren't wise just because they're dead, by the way. They're not, they don't get wise just by being dead to this world. They might get wise later on if they get themselves on a track, but funnily enough, a lot of dead people need the counsel of the living. They need us to be their spiritual guides because they're not aware where they are. It all, all seems very fuzzy and scary to them. And they look for someone reliable who might be us because we're familiar to them to help them out and tell them what road to take and assist their imaginations, which might be rather stunted. So, you know, I'm a great believer that the, the guides, the teachers that we need are going to appear to us. It's not a question of looking for them. It's a question of putting ourselves where we can be found. Where's the easiest place for our true spiritual teachers and guides to find us? I would say it's in dreams and in synchronicity. Let, let me say active dreaming is about the practice of synchronicity as much as about the practice of dreaming in any of the senses we've been talking about. Wherever I go in the world, I'm alert with all of my senses what the world around me is saying. To go Aboriginal, again, the Aborigines, my native country, say we live in the speaking land. The mountain is talking. The river is talking. The lizard is talking. The koala is talking. You know, the, the automobile is talking. <laughs> the TV set is talking. Facebook is talking. Everything's talking. And of course, you could get a headache trying to follow it all. But my game on any day of my life, if I'm out and about or if I'm at home, for that matter, is to accept the first unusual, unexpected thing that comes up as a message from the world, a dream message from the world. It might have a very dreamlike symbolic quality. It might be a very in-your-face kind of stop-go kind of sign language. So part of, the, part of the way of getting in touch with the deeper sources of knowing is to, is to navigate by synchronicity. I think it's like this. When we go dreaming, we might get out there. We might travel through the curtains, through the veils of our ordinary perception and go into another reality, a deeper reality, maybe. Through synchronicity, through meaningful coincidence, when you know in your shivers that something is going on, something is in play beyond the obvious. Through synchronicity, the powers of the deeper reality come poking or tickling or thrusting through the curtains of our ordinary understanding to tickle us awake, to give us a wink, to give us a nudge, to give us a secret handshake, or sometimes to push us back. So part of the engagement of the deeper reality and its powers and its intelligences is to be alert at every turning to what the world is saying to you in the way of synchronicity. And that might mean walking out on the street and receiving the first unexpected piece of conversation, piece of music from the passing car, someone yelling on their cell phone as a message for the day. The Greeks loved to do that. The Greeks called it a kledon, K-L-E-D-O-N, one of the favorite Greek ways of receiving everyday oracle was to go out and listen for the first sound, the first conversation, first bird call, first dog bark, and make that the message for the day. So that would be an example of dreaming with all of your senses, dreaming with the world around you. I love that, Robert. I had one yesterday. I'm sitting out on the deck in the morning, and a bird lands on my head and stays there for <laughs> about a minute and then flies off. And what was seeming like, you know, starting to be a difficult morning ended up to be a very magical morning. And I do love, live and love that synchronicities, coincidences, and how the universe is just speaking to us at all times. Well, let me tell you actually how I became a dream teacher because it involves a bird and a tree. Would you like to hear the story? I'd love to hear the story. Thank you. So I was doing very well. I was a very successful commercial, best-selling thriller writer back in the 80s, but I was bored with my life. It looked good from the outside, but I was bored. I wanted to do something else. I wanted to get away from big cities too. So I'd driven north from Manhattan to uh, Columbia County, which is a county on the Hudson River, 150 miles north of Manhattan. 
And I'm looking at a rundown farmhouse on a lot of land, and I'm thinking maybe I should move here. I don't know anyone in the area, but you know, I, I like the white-tailed deer in the woods. I like I like the feel of the place, and expensive to do it up. Should I really make the move? And I sit under an old white oak tree, 400-year-old oak tree that had survived the lightning, of the kind that my ancestors knew. And I'm thinking, is this right? And suddenly a hawk, a red-tailed hawk, appears overhead, circling overhead, dropping lower and lower, squalling at me. In a language I ought to be able to understand, and drops a feather between my legs. So it's not the only reason that I bought the farm, but it was really the decisive factor. And I have to carry this through a little bit further. When I was called by that Mohawk woman, and the Mohawks lived just on the other side of the river in those days. Now I live actually on what is traditional Mohawk land. I live very close to it back then. When she called me, I was actually flying on the wings of a red-tailed hawk in a lucid dream, and I was very aware I had. The wings of a red-tailed hawk is very physical seeming. Anyway, the time came when I needed to sell the farm because I needed to come back into community and do something with what I'd been learning. Basically, I was on the way to becoming a dream teacher, as I now call it. I only training for dream teachers. We've had hundreds of people from 28 countries who are now certified teachers of active dreaming. So it's popular and it's growing. But there was no career track for this and not even any definition for it. You know, when I started out on this path half a lifetime ago, so my dreams have guided me on selling the farm and the woman who will be custodian of the land has turned up in a most unusual way. It's too long a story to say more than she turned up in the most unusual way and bought the place at the asking price after she sat under the white oak tree for half an hour. That's, that's enough about that. So the land is going to someone who will be a custodian for the land. And I'm leaving the place to go and live in something more like a city and start teaching and uh, this stuff. I go back into the farm, even though it's been broom swept, we're ready to go, but I go back in yet again and I hear a rustling in the fireplace in the great hearth we'd installed in a room we've added to the old farmhouse. And I go to the fire screen and I remove it. There's a very young red-tailed hawk, a fledgling that has somehow come down the chimney. And my last action on this land that I bought because of the red-tailed hawk is to carry the young hawk out next to my heart and release it and watch it fly into the branches of the white oak tree where the first hawk dropped a feather as a message. So, you know, this is, I'm getting shivers as I tell you this story. There are moments when you really can't miss the fact that the world is speaking to you, a deeper world is speaking to you. And although that's my story, I wish a story like that for everybody who's watching and listening to us, because this is how we ought to be in community in communion with nature and with the powers around us, dreaming, as I say, with all of our senses, as well as in the night. Man, that is amazing. I wish that for all of our listeners, who it really is a magical place to be in. It really is. You um, speak about that a little bit in your new book. Let's talk about your new book. Well, I decided um, I wanted to affirm that this whole approach is a school of imagination as well as a school of dreaming and a school of this and a school of that, because people tend to underrate the imagination just as they tend to shrug off dreams or just my imagination. The creative imagination makes worlds. I mean, there's nothing made by human design in this planet that is not the result of imagination. And beyond that, a whole experience of life is going to hinge on our imagination or lack thereof, what we make of our situation. Do we have the imagination to look at our attitude and to change it? It's funny, when I came to sit, to sit down to write the book, of course, I asked for a dream to guide me. And I dreamed that I was giving a lecture 
on a well-known book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. You, you may have read it. Many people have read it. It's the story of an Auschwitz survivor who was a prosperous psychiatrist in Vienna before World War II, and then the Nazis got him, and they failed to kill him. They tried very hard to kill him in Auschwitz, but he didn't die. One of the reasons that Viktor Frankl made it through, as he tells in his book, is he used his imagination. He decided in he's a, he's a walking skeleton reduced to a bag of bones and a tattoo and a tattooed number on his arm. But he decides he's going to use his imagination and he grows a dream. He grows a vision of a life in which Hitler is a bad memory. The Nazis have been defeated. He's in a good suit in a decent auditorium, maybe in New York City, giving a lecture on the psychology of the concentration camps. This man is in a death camp. He's in a concentration. He's imagining he can look at it with the with the hindsight, with the perspective of someone who survived, can actually talk in intellectual terms about the psychology of what happened. Incredible. One year after the war, he was giving that lecture in that suit in that auditorium. And the lesson that emerged from his book was, in any situation, however desperate, we always have the freedom to choose our attitude. And that can change everything. So think about that. So on my way to writing Growing Big Dreams, I dreamed I'm giving a lecture about Viktor Frankl. And I thought, well, this is great, but I've already written about Viktor Frankl. Lots of people know about Viktor Frankl. Is, is this really appropriate? And I decided when, as I wrote the introduction, I would revive his story. And I wrote this before the pandemic was declared. And suddenly the pandemic was on us. And I'm thinking this was pitch perfect. It's as if I is as if I chose it to tell to tell people in the despair, surrounded by deaths, surrounded by incompetent government and so on, to tell people, okay, we've got it bad. But let's look at our attitude and see how we might be able to get through. And let's also remind ourselves to ask, is there a gift in the wound? Is there a, is there, is there a gift in the setback? Because one of the hardest things in life and one of the most essential when you're up against it, when something goes wrong, is to look for an opportunity in the setback. And, and that's one of the many messages in my new book, Growing Big Dreams, that what is in your way may be your way. That's borrowed from the philosopher Emperor Marcus Aurelius. There's an obstacle in your way. It might be your way. Don't just complain because there's something blocking you. Maybe that block is there for a reason. Maybe it's to make you consider whether you're actually on the right path and consider an alternative way. Maybe it's to make you, you know, up your game learn a skill set, show some perseverance, show some courage that has been lacking. But but that, that's, one of, that's one of the lessons of life that I wanted to get across in the book. You know, the obstacle might be a way, the setback might be the opportunity. Let's remember to look at it that way. I think probably of all the, of all the 12 secrets of imagination I write about, the two most important are ones we sketched already. The idea that you need to go to a place where you can find out what you want on the level of soul, where you can discover the secret wishes of your soul and operate from that depth. If you want to manifest your heart's desires, you better know what they are. It better not to be, it better be a grocery list of what you think it would be good to have, you know. You go to the place where you can find out what you deeply desire on the level of soul and heart and operate from there, and your dreams will help you with that. And another of the central lessons is, well, there are 12 of them, but let, let's do a second now and then a third, because three is my favorite number. A second lesson is your big story is hunting you. Again, I've gone indigenous, I've gone aboriginal with this. The aborigines say, isn't this is great. It's great for writers in particular. It's great for everybody. The aborigines say the big stories are hunting the right people to tell them. 
like a predator in the bush, like a shark in the water. Your big story is hunting you to tell it, to write it, to live it. What is your big story? Let yourself be found. So, and I've noticed, and maybe you have too, that when we have the sense that we are living a bigger story than just the resume life or this or that, we're connected to a deeper drama, the play of the gods and the goddesses, the play of the myths, the play of the archetypes. We develop a real working personal mythology, we have courage and drama to get us through those little ups and downs because we know it's part of a bigger plan. So that's part of it. Another part of it, this is a chapter title, and I'm very proud of this title. One of the chapter titles is, you don't have to drive used karma. You don't have to drive used karma. <laughs> I once saw a size site used karma dealer on a psychic shingle in the spiritualist camp in Florida, used karma dealer. Well, lots of us go around driving used karma. I mean, by that we go around with the regrets and the griefs and the, and the, and the guilt of, of earlier episodes in our life and earlier episodes in the family history and what we think are our past life situations and all the rest of it. But let ourselves be shadowed by some linear conception that we must carry this guilt and grief and fear and history of, you know, defeat and betrayal and whatever. No, the moment of awakening is the moment that you wake up. And this is said in the Eastern traditions too. In a moment of enlightenment, you can step out of all that stuff, step out of the old snakeskins, step out of the old stuff, step out of the ashes of the old life. Once you recognize the moment is now, the moment of awakening is now. And if you wake up to that, perhaps you can revise for the better past history, future history, and connect with parallel history. So uh, this is this is actually at the center of my own attention, at the center of my own thinking all the time. I'm convinced from my own experience, we live in a multi-dimensional universe. I'm convinced that right now, Liz, while you and I are talking, there are infinite parallel worlds where we're not talking, we're doing something else. There's a parallel world where you're not on Bashan, there's a parallel world certainly where I'm not in upstate New York. Any number of parallel worlds, we didn't have the pandemic, didn't have the politics we've had recently. Uh, and, and okay, that's interesting as a sort of intellectual hypothesis, but suppose some of those parallel worlds and parallel selves are rubbing against us rather closely, banging up against us, converging for good, bad, or mixed. How would that work? So, you know, for me, this is, a, this is one of the central realizations of life. The time is always now. And once you wake up to that and operate in that spirit, who knows what you might be able to revision and change for the better. Indeed. Let's dive a little bit more fully into the wound that you were talking about, because I really feel like the wound is a gateway to personal growth and enlightenment. And many, many people around the planet right now, because of the pandemic, are experiencing this, I'm going to call it collective wound. So can we dive into that a little bit and how we can use active dreaming and shamanic dreaming to help us through? Well, as I said, one of the things that happened in this pandemic is that people began reopening to inner resources they hadn't been using enough. And from my point of view, the most positive development was that people started pay, paying attention to dreams. I mean, lots of people started reporting dreams who never had of talking dreams before. Then, of course, they needed to learn a way of talking about dreams that works. Uh, probably the most important thing I've contributed to all of this is a technique I first launched upon the world in 2000, gosh, more than 20 years ago, which is called the lightning dreamwork technique. It's a very simple four-step approach by which you can share a dream or in fact any personal story, get some non-intrusive, non-authoritarian feedback from someone and be guided to action, all very, all very briskly. And you know, it's become even more popular in this period because as I people are people are willing to share dreams, but they want to get the right kind of feedback. They want it to be safe. 
And they'd also like to see something come out of it. So that it's not just a conversation that ends in some dry analysis, but might lead to some creative or healing action. So I've given people that process. I've noticed in the content of their dreams, yes, there are dreams that are uh, scary in the sense that they might be warning you not to rush into the restaurant or the bar too hastily, that kind of dream, dramatizing the risks that are still out there. There are a lot of dreams like that. But a lot of people who were not in the habit of sharing dreams have been sharing much more interesting dreams in which they're getting out and about in a happy way in a place where there's no social distancing, no masking, you can hug. There's a place where you can, you know, go and be on the other side of the world or another world altogether having an adventure and you come back sometimes feeling refreshed and entertained. Sometimes I admit you come back feeling jet lagged as if you really did fly around the world, <laughs> had, had to come back and get up in the morning. I mean, there can be a little sort of side jet lag factor in, in dream travel. And one aspect of the dreams I saw, and let, let me say, because I'm a teacher and I have very popular online courses, I've gone very much online in this period as so many of us, so many of us has, have. I, mean, I can read 200 serious dream reports, I mean, substantial dream reports every day from my students and followers if I want to. I do not read 100 a day, but I probably read 40 or 50. So I'm seeing a lot of dream material all the time and not just, you know, three lines. I'm seeing sometimes very detailed reports with comments around them and so on. I get people to talk about their feelings. I get people to say whether they recognize anything from this and the rest of their life. Could it play out in the future and so on. Anyway, so amongst all these dreamers, I've noted that a lot more people than before have been dreaming about what happens after death. And, you know, when you think about how death, how many have died in the pandemic and how close death has been to so many families, I don't know anybody who is not related to someone who died in this period closely or, or more distantly. It's very appropriate, isn't it? It's always appropriate to think about death, not to be morbid, but to develop some understanding of what happens at death and what happens beyond death. And I would say that most of the dreams of death that have been reported to me, the dreams are not just about grandma in the hospital and not being able to see one, that, that are not just pictures of a very horrible uh, physical situation. Most of the dreams of death that have been reported to me in this period have been very positive in the sense that they give the impression that life goes on. I, mean, I remember one beautiful dream uh, of, a, of, a, of a beloved uh, mother or grandmother, beloved grandmother, who was very good at decorating houses. I mean, she had a great sense of design, she was great at doing places up. And the dream was that she created a whole little village of uh, beautiful little houses, all tailored to the taste of family members who would be joining her. Not all at once, but over time, she'd like to have this sort of way station where, you know, family members that she cares for can spend some time, as much time as they like. She doesn't mean to hold them, you know, in confinement, but she's getting everything cozied up and ready so that they'll have a nice place to settle in when they go into that bardo state. I mean, that's, that's a very happy example of the genre of dream that I'm talking about. And I've dreamed many friends uh, who've been departed in this period. I guess I've always done that, but I just found it very interesting to have a look at what they're doing now and sometimes get their opinion about what's gone wrong in our world and whether we can do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful that you're able to do that, Robert. That's amazing. Yeah, it's nice to have those dream visitations and everything. It's nice that you can communicate with them. I know a lot of people that I talked to, and I know myself, you know, we received messages instead of being able to communicate with them. So that's, I think that's where the lucid dreaming, you know, really comes in. So beyond like recognizing, because I've talked to friends who have been able to recognize that they're dreaming. I myself, um, in a dream just a couple of weeks ago, um, said, gosh, you know, these women have goatees. And I'm like, in the dream, <laughs> women don't have goatees. I'm obviously dreaming, like I'm awake. I'm dreaming, so I'm trying to tell my conscious, 
in the dream state. I'm like, Liz, you're dreaming. Wake up and, you know, do your dreaming. It's really fun. So how do we take that lucid dreaming from recognizing that we're lucid in the dream to actually functioning in the dream? Well, I think it's, I think it's, I think that the, the choices set up in the popular approaches to lucid dreaming aren't satisfactory. Let me give you an example from last night. You gave me a story. I'll give you a story from last night. Last night, I'm involved in some drama. It's really very exciting. It's an adventure. It's like, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a fantasy movie, really. Uh, anyway, there's a castle. It's called the Castle of Wonders. And it's in a, a land that is somewhat like Romania, which I know well, but it's not exactly Romania, but it's in a, a land like, I'd say, Transylvania, Castle of Wonders. The Castle of Wonders has fallen to dark forces. It must be retaken. And I am in charge of the group that are going to try to liberate the castle. We're a very small force, very small force. We're vastly outnumbered. But the real problem is to get to the castle, we have to go up these three enormous ladders. I guess they may be like medieval siege ladders. And I leap up these ladders as if, you know, I'm the most athletic guy on earth. In ordinary reality, I could not possibly get up any of these ladders, however slowly. So at that moment, I know I'm dreaming. But but the consciousness doesn't come to me. I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming, I'm lucid dreaming. It simply comes to me, oh, I'm in a different reality. Uh, but it's no less real than ordinary life. I must make my decisions carefully and wisely, and I carry on. It's just saying to me, okay, Robert, you're not in Albany, New York, or in, or in Vashon Island. You're somewhere else. So the big discovery is to me is not that I'm dreaming. I know I'm, I'm dreaming right now. I'm talking to you, but I'm in a physical body, and I, but I'm still dreaming right now. It's simply confirming to me, Robert, you are in a different body, in a different reality. Pay attention to what's going to happen next. Make the right choices. And this becomes very interesting because as we reach the top, as we, we scale the final ladder, we're now there ready to take on the dark forces. I realize we've got it made. We've got far superior technology, or maybe it's simply magic. So we're outnumbered 10 to 1, but we are going to win. But now my concern as leader is not to kill, not to harm the adversary, but to heal, but to heal them, to actually bring peace. So I'm operating, I'm operating with that hyper awareness that I have, I'm getting shivers now. I have a calling here. My calling here is to bring peace instead of continue the war. My, my calling is to help bring an end to this conflict that will not leave bodies on the ground. I came out of this dream deeply satisfied, but the key moment in relation to this discussion was my ability to get up those ladders, you know, told me, Robert, you're not in your regular body. You're not in ordinary reality. You're somewhere else. But the result is not a great bubble going up and saying, I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming, I'm having a lucid dream. That is of minor interest to me. What is of major interest to me is that we all should be conscious that we have choice, that we have choice. And we should be think about what choices we are making, whatever reality we are in. So all this business about I'm lucid dreaming, I'm lucid dreaming, rah, rah, rah. It's of little interest to me. What it is, what is it of interest to me is making the right decisions and recognizing we have choice, we have free will. And that's what the episode with the ladder did for me. I'm dreaming with, with dead people who are alive all the time. I, I don't have a big bubble coming out of my head. Is I'm dreaming because they're dead. I'm thinking they're alive and I'm alive and we're in a different reality. And I wonder what body I'm operating in now. And I wonder what we're going to do this time. So you see, it's a slightly different order of priorities. Beautiful, Robert. Thank you for that explanation. That really like brings clarity to you know trying to work within the dream, especially when you're realizing you're becoming lucid. And I love the dream that you described. It's has a sense of hope to it, especially around these times right now. Appreciate it did that. have a sense of hope to it. 
and a sense of responsibility. But I mean, and, and it, it, it carried no weight. You know, dreams can you, you can feel burdened by a dream. I felt just deeply satisfied by this dream that somehow, whoever, whatever role I was in in that dream, that dream, Robert, was making the right choices and looking at things the right way, which is as a healer rather than, you know, rather than an eternal warrior. Yeah, beautiful, Robert. I was listening to you on the Shift Network um, a while back uh, during the pandemic. You've done a lot of things online. I appreciate that. Thank you. And you said a word, cryomancer. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, chiromancer. This is one of my inventions. Mm -hmm. Jung made up the word synchronicity because he's fed up with our difficulty in discussing coincidence. We get tongue-tied. We say it wasn't a coincidence, meaning it was, but it was meaningful. We don't talk about coincidence. Coincidence simply means in its Latin origin things that fall together at the same time. But because we can't talk about it coherently, Jung thought he he was a scholar, he was a classicist, he, he made up the word synchronicity, which merely, which just means things happening at the same time. That's all it means. It's not an interesting word, but it sounds scientific. So if you say synchronicity, people nod their heads sagely. If you say coincidence, they, they, get, they get adult. Well, I was thinking, is that a better word? And I explored other words we could use for synchronicity, both very old words and words from different traditions. I decided, wait a minute, what we really want is a word for someone who navigates by synchronicity, someone who uses the signs and the symbols of the world around them for life navigation. So I made up the word chiromancy. I'm not as good a classicist as Jung, but I know a little bit. And I knew, for example, that the Greeks had two gods of time. There's Kronos, from which we get chronology, chronometer. Kronos is the god of TikTok linear time, old god, overthrown, confined in a cave under an island in the Western Sea, although our clocks still keep ticking. And then there's Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. Kairos is the god of special moments, of opportunity time, of jump time. He's personified as a beautiful young man who is naked and slippery, apart from a forelock on his temple, where you get the phrase, grab time by the forelock, meaning this is a special moment, grab it or it's gone. So I took Kairos, the name of this god of special moments, where you better be ready to jump, better be ready to do something, and I put the mansi, which is about divination, so it literally means divination by special moments, divination by kairos time. But in practice, what it really means is if you become a chiromancer, que romantico, my Spanish-speaking friend said when they heard, que romantico, chiromancer, que romantico, does sound rather romantic. If you become a chiromancer, you already, you are forever poised to notice that special moment when things are working differently. It's as if time has stopped sometimes, as if something from outside time is intruding into the world, something in your mind that pops up right in front of you. A certain symbol is there in the world. There it is again, 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 all around you. You've got something on your mind, and the vanity plate on that car gives you the immediate response to what's on your mind. We all know that kind of thing. You think of someone, they call you up, haven't heard about them for six months, but there they are. So uh, what do you do? Well, what you do is you remain open and available to these signs from the world. You don't just go around in headphone land listening to pre-programmed stuff all the time. You give yourself some moments during the day when you're absolutely available to what the world, what will pop up in the world around you. For example, you're going out of your house, your apartment, going for a walk. You give yourself 15 minutes where you'll collect, just say, three impressions with any of your senses of what the world is seeing to, saying to you, the call of that bird. The sound of the wind in the trees, that unexpected aroma, that snatch of conversation. Or maybe you've got something on your mind for which you need guidance. So you carry that intention in your mind, I'd like, I'd like guidance on such and such. And you see what the world gives you in response. You know, shall I tell a story about how that works? 
Yes, please. All right, so my very first series of public dream workshops a long time ago, there's a woman there who stopped dreaming. She used to dream, but now she doesn't, now she doesn't remember any dreams and she's in a dream workshop. It's an evening series. And she's very self-aware. She says, I think I know why I'm not receiving my dreams. I think it's because of my fear. What's your fear? I'm scared I'm going to lose my job and I don't want my dreams to say that that's going to happen. So I say to her at the end of the evening class, okay, dear, go and get your dream from the world. What do you mean? I say, write down your intention for guidance on that issue. Is my job safe? Is that your issue? Yeah, okay, write it down. I know what it is. Write it down. Put it in your bra, in your pocketbook, whatever. Carry it with you as you go home tonight and see if anything comes up, anything enters your field of perception that could be a response from the world. So next week we're gathered again. She's so excited she can't wait. It, I got it immediately, Robert. What happened? I know the area well. I was driving the wrong way down a one-way street till a big truck put on his air horn and seemed to be threatening to sweep me off the street. <laughs> Did you get the message? Yeah, my job is blown. Forget that. But the funny thing is, she said, once I got that message from the world, I started dreaming again. Now she has a dream. She's in Washington, D.C. She's at a conference on transportation. So we worked the dream. Yeah, she's got a good friend in Washington, D.C. She doesn't know about transportation, except maybe driving the wrong way down a one-way street, but she knows a lot about organizing conferences. Okay, action plan. She uses her frequent flyer miles. She flies to DC. She stays with a friend. She checks out the job market. Six months later, she's got a new job in Washington, DC, earning 50% more than she earned before, which is great because her old job has gone. Her whole department of the New York State government has been abolished. There is no job. But she is safe somewhere else, and she's organizing a conference on transportation, like the one in the dream. So here's a story of someone getting a message from the world in a dreamlike way, driving the wrong way down the one-way street that she knows perfectly well. Then her dreams reopen, and then through working the dream, working the dream and coming up with an action plan, she saves herself from a horrible situation in regular life. I'm very practical about these things. I love the pure adventure of it. I love retaking the castle of wonders in my dream last night and being in this sort of romantic fantasy script. But I also want to see results. I want to see this put food on the table. I want to see this bring people together. I want to see this bring some healing. I want to see this put more soul in the body. I want practical results. And, uh, and it does deliver. This is a very, it is not practical to do without your dreams. I can tell you it is not practical at all to stop listening to what your soul what your deeper self would like you to do and to be in life. That is not practical at all. No, yeah. And if we just pay attention, our world can open up. Yeah. Or Robert. Yeah, thank you. In a recent blog post, um, you wrote about the rule of reality that we attract and repel different things according to our emotions, attitudes, feelings, and agendas we carry. Could you... Um, Describe that a little bit more for us, because I love manifestation. Well, it's the law of attraction, which is sometimes you put in a silly way, but it's still a fundamental law. It's never been a secret. The law of attraction is an open secret. I mean, it's only if you're not paying attention that you wouldn't be aware of it. You're, whatever you do in life, your attitude goes ahead of you. It's shaping the encounters, the events that lie around the next corner. You will literally attract or repel physical events as well as individual people. I mean, people will resonate with you or fail to resonate with you, but also the attitudes you are carrying have a direct effect on physical reality around you. And we know about that from no less a scientific brain than that of Wolfgang Pauli, the, the Nobel laureate, pioneer of quantum physics, who helped Jung develop his synchronicity theory. And uh, Pauli himself was a, was a poster boy for the, the, this phenomenon of, of magnetism. 
You know, you know, it became known as the Pauli effect. You can look it up in a dictionary. He was a, he was a brilliant scientist, but he was also a mass of roiling, conflicted emotions. And wherever he think went, things would blow up. We're not talking about light bulbs popping. We're not talking about computers crashing. We're talking about serious blow-ups. When he went to Princeton, he was getting off the train, and a huge cyclotron, which was G-Wiz technology back then, explodes. And the lab scientists say, it's Pauli. Pauli must have arrived in Princeton. It blew up because of him. It's the Pauli effect. Uh, on a gentler note, one aspect of this that I love that is so beautiful is the idea, it was put very poetically by the Irish patron poet, George Russell, who called himself A. He said, your own will come to you, your kin, your spiritual kin, your own kind will come to you. The nature of your life, the nature of the work, your nature of your study will draw sympathetic, compatible intelligences and personalities to you, not only from, you know, those around you in this world, but from great minds or, 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 or similar minds from across time and space. So you might, for example, attract the attention of someone who's died to this world that could be a great mentor to you. I found that to be very true. I found, for example, when I was docked upon a book which was published as the Dreamer's Book of the Dead, that uh, the poet William Butler Yeats turned up and said to me, what better guide to the other side than a poet? And he became, or my version of him became, my mentor for incandescent night after incandescent night and introduced other people who have died and on the other side as I wrote. And I wrote quite openly about this in the book. So I was engaged with the individual spirit of Yeats or his essence or part of me that's like Yeats. I didn't really mind. The results were incredibly creative and productive. So I embarked on a certain course of study and passionate engagement. And I draw a sympathetic mind, a sympathetic intelligence. Maybe it's wearing the mask of the poet. Whatever it is, it is a great creative mind, great creative spirit that was with me through the period of writing that book every night. Beautiful, Robert. Oh my gosh, you are such a wonderful storyteller. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. <laughs> We're coming to our end right now. Is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with today? Any pearls of wisdom? Well, I think it is about finding your story. You know, we live by stories. If we don't know, don't know that, we're probably bound to the wrong kind of story. We're probably trying to act out some drama our family imposed on us or some old history. Uh, it's very important to find the story of your life that you can live now, the story you want to live now. One of my recent courses of the Shift Network is, was called Dreaming Your Mythic Life. It was about using the techniques of active dreaming to grow your personal myth and the powers associated with that. So I'd say, you know, I go back to that Aboriginal state saying, your big story is hunting you. Put yourself in a place where it can find you. And you can do that most easily by opening yourself to dreams, to opening yourself to spontaneous imagery in that drifty state between sleep and awake, and by opening, opening yourself to the dreamlike play of symbols and synchronicity in the world around you. Let your big story find you. Awesome, Robert. That's perfect. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you so My much pleasure. for joining us today. Great. And thank you everyone for listening. This is Robert Moss and you can find him at Robert or mossdreams.com. Excuse me. That's www.mossdreams.com. And also visit his blog, mossdreams.blogpost.com. Robert, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. May you grow big dreams and may you see them manifest in the world. Thank you, Robert. And thank you, everyone. You can find me at Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Raise the Vibe with Liz and my website at lizeshealingtouch.com. Thank you so much for joining me today, everyone. Thank you, Robert. And remember to get out there and raise the vibe, everybody. 
Thank you for listening to today's show on Raise the Vibe with Liz. If you like this content and want to support me, please go to Patreon at Raise the Vibe with Liz or click the link in the description of this show. And remember, change starts with you. So get out there and raise the vibe. Thank you, everyone.